Greetings, everyone. When was the last time you took a bite of food and had to immediately spit it out? That happened to me one time with a bottle of ketchup in a restaurant. You ever notice when you get a hold of something that is spoiled that God has provided us with glands not on the back of our tongue or deep in our throat or in our stomachs, but on the very tip of your tongue? You ever notice that? If something is spoiled, like spoiled fruit or spoiled something, God has arranged it so before it gets in there, if you barely taste of it, you spit it out. My wife and I went in a restaurant one time and we opened the cap of a brand new bottle of ketchup. And I noticed when I did, there were little bubbles sort of rising to the surface. And I took just the barest little taste of that and it was just horribly spoiled. And I'm sure that if I had eaten a good healthy mouthful of it, I would have had tomaine poisoning. We were chatting just the other day, my wife and my son and I, about a family that he brought up that to the whole family are just really sweet, nice people. You ever knew people like that? Where the father and the mother set that kind of an example of the children, and the children were easygoing and very even-tempered and very easy to get to know. They were easygoing. They were good, decent people. And it seemed like the parents passed on in their conduct of their lives that very same attitude to the children. And the children were nice and easygoing people. It's easy for us to be nice and easygoing and sweet people when we're singing a song, when we're saying amen at the opening prayer, when we're sitting in church. It's easy for ministers oftentimes to look up in the Bible and to preach all kinds of sermons about love and about goodness and decency and patience and long-suffering. But you know, you're looking at a tired old body up here that in the last forty-some years in the ministry of Jesus Christ has seen a church first divide and then virtually disintegrate, then other churches divide, groups try to form together and then divide, has seen men ordained where there were tears in the eyes of those and the one being ordained and handshakes, handshakes rather, and bonhomie and camaraderie all around when you give them the little bottle of oil and say, welcome into the ministry. And then some months or years later, that same individual can become acrimonious, accusative, bitter, spoiled. I want to talk to you today about bitter roots. To refresh my memory, I thought I knew. I decided to look up the word bitter. And the dictionary says having a sharp, harsh, unpleasant taste. Unpleasant to the mind or feeling, harsh or cutting, caustic, painful, cold, biting. The old English synonyms are acrid, painful, distressing, grievous, acrimonious, virulent, stinging. Now God does say to a particular group of people who were, by the way, extant in the first century in a little church called Laodicea, that they were merely lukewarm kind of like you get up and you've let the coffee cool in the cup, you didn't realize it, and you take a sip of it, and it's tepid. And he said, because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. So it shows someone taking a sip of coffee and just spitting it right back into the cup because it's unpalatable and you can't stand it. The Bible speaks of us as having a savor. It speaks of Christians as being the salt 
of the earth, and if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It talks about Christians as being a palatable taste in the mouth of God. What is it like to God when we become so absolutely bitter, so filled with acrimony, so prone to point out the difficulties of other people, and so absolutely unwilling to accept or to admit any degree of responsibility that all we can do is to point away from ourselves, what does God feel about that? In Luke 17, the first chapter, of verse, verse rather, of chapter 17 of the book of Luke, then said Jesus to the disciples, it is impossible but that offenses will come. I found that out in local churches. I found that out among various boards and committees and groups. I found that that is true among ministers. I found that that is true in any corporation. I found that it is true in any group of people. I've told you time and again that I feel that if any three people were marooned in a life raft out in the middle of the South Pacific, they would fight over who got to steer. That somebody has got to lead and somebody else has got to follow and somebody else has got to get out of the way. He said it is impossible. Now, you better believe that because it's true. It is utterly impossible, but that offenses are going to come. People are going to be hurt. People are going to be turned off. People are going to be offended. But woe unto him through whom they come. The perpetrator, the person who is responsible for causing the offense, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Ever seen a millstone? Great, big, huge, heavy, grinding stone, weighs maybe up to a ton or more. You tie that around someone's neck and throw him overboard, and he plunges like a rock straight to the bottom. And he's going to drown in a very few seconds or a minute or two. Then that he shall offend one of these little ones. And a little one can be 80 years of age. A little one can be 55 or 47 or 39. A little one is merely a new convert to Christ, a member of God's church. I remember one man who was in the ministry. And there was a case in Pasadena, California, back just before the real beginning of the civil rights movement, and believe it or not, we had, at that time, segregated church congregations. We had a Los Angeles church, which was primarily African Americans, or blacks. And we had churches like in South Africa, where both the white and the black had to meet separately, even far later than the early 1960s or the late 1950s. There was a man who had a local cafe to which many of our employees would go for lunch. He was a nice guy. I think his name was Ernie or something. And he really thought that some of the fellows that went down there were nice people, and he was a nice guy, and they got to chatting, and he knew that they came from Ambassador College. So he thought one day that he would go over there and visit. Well, he was a dark, swarthy, Mediterranean-looking fellow. Actually, he was Armenian. He was an Armenian. And he walked into the foyer of the Pasadena Gymnasium, and he was met by a minister. And the minister said to him, the Mexicans are supposed to go to the Los Angeles church. The guy never darkened the door again. That was the last time this man ever showed up on our doorstep. You know, with meters and greeters like that, you may as well have a group of thugs with a baseball bat out there driving people away. Now, Mr. Dart gave a sermon some few years ago. He'd picked up a book about all these different uh, 
psychoses or whatever they are, and there was one chapter about the well-intentioned dragons, and I imagine some of you remember that sermon because that was an outstanding portion of it, of people who don't really mean to be a smoking, roaring dragon. They have only the best of intentions. They want to talk to people. They want to bring people along. They want to introduce themselves to people. And uh, they are trying to be a mover and a shaker in the congregation. But it ends up that they really become busybodies, and they're sticking their nose into all sorts of areas where they don't belong, and they become well-intentioned dragons. This was a book on psychology, and there were some very good thoughts in it. So Jesus says two very important things. It is utterly impossible, because in any group, corporate, church, or otherwise, there are going to be people becoming offended, getting their feelings hurt. But woe be unto those who cause it. It would be better for them to be struggling and gasping for their last breath as they are drowning, your Savior said that, not Garner Ted Armstrong, than to offend one of these little ones. Now, how does God call people like that into account? Will there come a time when that gentleman that I mentioned, or other people who have done similar things, are face to face with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then they are called into account, and what is the accounting? What will be the judgment? It's interesting. I don't really think I know the perfect answer to that. It could be so severe as to be loss of salvation, I assume, unless it is understood and unless there is repentance, complete repentance of having done such a terrible thing, especially with a racial slur implied where the man didn't even recognize who this man was and to make such a terrible statement to a person trying to visit a church. Unthinkable. Well, Jesus went on to say, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass or sin against thee, rebuke him. I have got to learn to obey my Savior a little more in that regard. In that regard, I am extremely weak. I really, really am. I'm going to give you a key a little later on about the way we approach problems between and among brethren and between and among family members. He says, rebuke him. I find it's very difficult to do that. Now. I will qualify that by another scripture that Christ inspired in just a moment. And if you repent, forgive him. That is a very big if. And I think you'll find in your experience that when someone has done something pretty bad, and they really are in the wrong, and you do rebuke them with the qualifications I'm about to give you, it's very rare that they really repent. Usually, you have lost a friend. And usually, you never gain them back. Turn to Galatians, the sixth chapter, and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Now, that's saying if a man is in a bad attitude, he is sinning, he's doing something really wrong. Ye which are spiritual, I take that to mean close to God in prayer. I take that to mean introspective very aware of your own fallibility, your own weakness, your own shortcomings, very quick to acknowledge them and to say, hey, I know I'm not perfect. I know i got a lot of problems too, but, and then approach it from that point of view. There's a very great difference if I had a blackboard here to show you two lines, and those two lines are out here, and there are two people on a collision course in disagreement, and they are headed toward a collision. 
Whether one is in authority and the other is under authority doesn't matter. But if you take those lines and just before they collide, you make them kind of turn and go along together, and now suddenly you've got two lines going the same direction, you will see what I'm talking about when I say that there's an approach where you can say to someone, how can I help you find your way through this problem? How can you and I solve this problem together? I'm here to try to help you solve this problem together. Rather than, do you know what you did just now? There's a whole different approach there. And I think one will get some results, and the other is liable to get you, well, in some extreme cases, a knuckle sandwich, as they say. He'll have a hard time getting his fist back out of your mouth. You which are spiritual, those who are close to God, restore such an one, not get back at him, not penalize him or punishing, but restore, because that is your goal. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. There is an attitude, and I saw this attitude very, very much extant in the minds of many people who were pharisaical in their approach to God's church and to the true religion of Jesus Christ in judging other people. And the attitude goes something like this. If he or she commits a sin, I can see that it is a sin. I am very hard on myself. I'm very tough on myself. I am very austere. I hold myself back. I have greater self-control. I have complete control of my appetites, and I couldn't do that. Therefore, he or she got away with it. And that makes me furious. And I'm going to find a way to make them pay. Now, that is the pharisaical attitude. They honestly think that a sinner gets away with it. And they then think they are the policeman to watch and to make sure they never get away with it again. What is God's attitude toward a sinner? It is the same attitude of you as a parent toward a beloved little one-month-old or six-weeks-old or one-year-old baby. You're thinking that poor creature is about to hurt himself or herself terribly. And that just about breaks my heart because I love my child so much. I can't stand to think of my child hurting itself. So I would rather punish the child to impress a lesson. Don't run in the street after the ball. Don't peer over the fourth-story parapet. Don't play with matches. Don't take a butane lighter and sit at the gas jet. I would rather spank them, punish them, really let them feel it a little bit, which will be over in 30 seconds or a minute or two, to indelibly impress the lesson rather than let them lose their lives or be burnt to death or horribly injured later on. But what is the motive? The motive is one of love. The motive is one of protection. The motive is one of keeping someone from hurting themselves. It is not vindictive anger. It is not, I am outraged because I can't do that, and they got away with it. It is, oh, they are really hurting themselves, and I want to help. So, he says, considering yourself, you do it in a spirit of meekness. I think you know what that means. Considering yourself, looking introspectively into your own failings, lest you also be tempted in a similar way. Bear ye one another's burdens. Now, is there a conflict here? We're going to see in a couple of verses. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, Oh, that's tough language. 
Isn't that tough language? Now, it doesn't mean that he's really completely nothing, meaning an absolute blithering idiot without a brain in his head, of course. It means with regard to the particular uh, degree of uh, aplomb or accord or, or accolades or uh, office or stature or status or whatever it is that he seeks, in that particular regard, if a man think himself to be something or somebody when he is nothing, no one, he deceives himself. He's just kidding himself. He's blind about himself. He is guilty of idolatry. He's guilty of self-worship. He is guilty of preening himself in his own self-deceived opinion of himself. But let every man prove his own work, then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And he doesn't need to be telling everybody about it. It'll be obvious because it will be visible by his works. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read, bear ye one another's burdens? And then it says, every man shall bear his own burden? Well, isn't that a contradiction? Well, no. No, what it means is everybody is going anyway to bear his own burden. Those who are bearing their own burdens sometimes need to get under the other fellow's burden and bear it so that that moment you are bearing both burdens. You're going to be bearing your own burden, your own problems anyway. And then if you get beneath a friend or a brother, brother or a sister in the church beneath some of their problems and burdens, try to help them with it, then you're bearing two burdens, aren't you? Let's go to James, the third chapter, and begin in verse 8. James, the third chapter, that's the famous chapter about the tongue that everyone is pretty familiar with. It seems that when attitudes that are bitter, when roots of bitterness and acrimony seem to take deep root in someone's heart and mind, that the one thing they can do with greater alacrity than anything else is to accuse the other person, is to throw a great big bunch of dust and smoke in the air, obfuscation, misdirection. You're talking about an issue. The issue is clearly cut out. It has parameters that are absolutely obvious. All of a sudden, because the other person finds themselves on the defensive, they will pick some idea from way out in left field, over the ballpark and out of the county, and run it in and say, yes, but you did thus and such and so and so, and you're wrong because of this. Now, they've been painted, they painted themselves into a corner. They can't weasel out of it. They are wrong, and the issue is clear. But instead of saying, you're right, I'm wrong. Oh, that's so difficult to get people to do. They will instead accuse, point a finger, and get a root of bitterness. I was also saying the other day to some of our ministry who were gathered here together, the senior ministers in the church, the ministerial council, you ever notice how difficult it is, how much time we spend, how many hours, how many letters and telefaxes sometimes going back and forth, up and down, around, 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 trying to get a fellow human being to say, you know what, I was wrong. That is so difficult sometimes to get a person to acknowledge, I was wrong. In the third chapter and verse 8, the tongue can no man tame, it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now that's uh, the word of God there, and I think all of you know, you've heard all your life and you know the old stories and so on, sticks and stones and all the rest of it. That's not true. The old uh, playground thing of sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. Oh, that is so false. That is so absolutely untrue. It's pitiful. 
Words can harm, words can cut, words can hurt, words can destroy marriages and friendships, words can cause suicides, words can cause deep psychoses, neuroses, words can destroy a life. The tongue can no man tame, it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing, like a fountain that would pour out poison and sweet water. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, or a vine, figs? So no fountain can both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him prove or show out of a good conversation, should be translated conduct, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife just roiling around down inside, an attitude, no matter how well you keep it concealed, glory not and lie not against the truth, because you are at that moment in the most absolutely wrong mode, completely contrary to God, contrary to God's Holy Spirit, contrary to the Bible, contrary to Christianity, contrary to Jesus Christ. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, that's carnal, sensual or of the senses, devilish, of Satan the devil. For envying and strife, combative attitudes, where strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But wisdom, the wisdom it is from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. That is right out of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that love is easy to be entreated, believes the best, hopes the best, endures all thing, uh, things, thinks not highly of itself, and so on, is not uh, easily upset or gets its feelings hurt. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, what is the cause of bitterness, of a root of bitterness? Believe it or not, a root of bitterness is impossible. It cannot take root and it cannot grow in a person who is spiritual because Christ cannot coexist with Satan the devil, because the Holy Spirit cannot coexist with the attitude of Satan the devil or his demons, because the Holy Spirit simply is not the kind of soil in which a root of bitterness can grow or flourish. If there is bitterness, it is axiomatic that there is a great lack of God's Holy Spirit, because the two are absolutely incompatible. They cannot coexist. The bigger the root, the deeper it goes. The more the person is pointing elsewhere, you did this, you did the other, you didn't do the other, you wouldn't listen, you paid no attention, whatever it is, the less of God's Holy Spirit they have. The more they accuse, the more it is axiomatic, and it's a further axiom, nearly always you will find that the individual who is doing all the accusing is guilty of the very thing of which they accuse the other person. It's interesting that very guilty people that are laden with guilt will take that very guilt and point a finger and get louder about a particular kind of sin or shortcoming or problem than any other you can imagine, 
in order to conceal, obfuscate, and confuse the issue in the stupid assumption, and anybody that knows chapter 1, paragraph 1, verse 1 of a psychology book ought to know better, in the stupid assumption that by so doing, the individual they are accusing won't tumble to the fact that they've just put their finger on the greatest measure of guilt in that individual. They just will not tumble to that. But it's true. You know, I know a couple of people, and uh, every now and then I've found myself slipping into that mode that tend to feel they are too right about everything. I find myself doing that sometimes. I have to yank myself up short and say, now wait just a minute. You may not know all there is to know about that particular subject. There are an awful lot of things in this world that I don't know. An awful lot of things about history. A lot of things, technical things, all kinds of things that I don't know. You talk about the universe and about astronomy and about science. You're talking about an awful lot of things I don't know a lot about. A lot of things I just don't know. And when there is someone who is knowledgeable about those things, I'm certainly willing to sit and listen. And it becomes a bit unsufferable, or insufferable, I should say, when you are talking with someone who has all the answers about any subject under the sun. That's where the courthouse steps come in. That's where the barber shop comes in. That's where the bartender and the guy after three drinks comes in on the bar. So from the bar room to the boardroom, they have all the answers. They are always right. Now, I can tell you a couple of people that I think about, and they're not members of God's church at all, just people that I know. But I had to sit down when I was thinking about that this morning and write a little ode to those who are always right. So this is an ode to those who have all the answers and are always right after all. And they are saying to themselves, oh, how positively wonderful it is to be right, to bask in the knowledge that no matter how slight the issue before us, I need but the bare bones, the outline, impatiently waiting for your conclusions before giving you mine. For it matters not which subject or which topic you address. I'll tell you the truth of it, what to think and what is best. A fountain of knowledge am I, whether we speak of peace or of war, of fast airplanes, fine wines, or slow old Model T Fords. Whether it's medicine or politics or religion you'd like to discuss, I'll quickly give you the answers and tell you what to believe with a minimum of fuss. Should you tell me of money or history or women or song, it'll only take me moments to tell you how totally wrong you are, for you cannot approach me for knowledge, wisdom, and experience. For I am right about everything, you see, with an uncommon amount of just plain old common sense. So don't argue with me, for pity's sake, or try to disagree, or I'll put you down and belittle you and try to make you see that there's no one else on earth, no matter where you may be, who is anywhere near so knowledgeable and intelligent as me. Now, what was that you were discussing just then? Oh, uh, wait a minute, you mean you're leaving so soon when I had only just begun to give you all the answers to everything you ever wanted to know? Uh, what's that you say? Oh, well, of course, I understand if you really have to go. Oh, well, uh, goodbye then. See you later. So long. Hmm, you suppose just then I could have been wrong? If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and refresh our memories, what is really good to do here sometimes, and this is kind of like stopping in a service station and having a full service man come out there. They don't do that very often anymore and use a dipstick to check your oil. But this is a spiritual dipstick. And every time you come to 1 Corinthians 15, 13, I'm sorry, and you look at it and you 
put your name in the place of agape, which is the agape love, the outgoing love that is the subject of this chapter, the beautiful chapter, it really comes clear. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and oh, do I get letters about that. You would be amazed. I get several charts, graphs, tapes, uh, big, thick manuscripts. I get whole books people want me to publish. I have more material that comes to me on prophecy, all kinds of prophecies. Uh, prophecies about anything from the invasion of the United States by Mexico to prophecies having to do with outer space. I mean, it, just all kinds of them all the time. And many people feel that that's the most important thing you can, you can come to know, is to have a, prop, a prophetic gift, a prophetic uh, symbol of some kind that you understand. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains. Now let's think about that instead of just read about it, all right? How much faith have you got? How much faith have I got? Well, I must not have enough faith to have been able to pray to our Creator God for so many hours and even getting away with my wife and fasting when our children were young and having a whole church pray and having other people pray and having the entire ministry anoint them and having my father anoint my sons time and time and time again. Do I have the faith to remove a mountain into the sea? Absolutely not. No, I stand before you and admit that I don't have anywhere near that kind of faith. I try to have faith. I try to believe. I try to believe that I have faith. I pray in faith as well as I can understand it and feel it and experience it when we get down on our knees on the prayer luncheon. But my sons are still deaf. So when people come to me and they want advice about whether someone should have an appendectomy, I tell them the truth. I tell them my experiences, and I very quickly tell them my weaknesses so that I do not put a trip on them of spiritual guilt so they make a wrong decision and have a death in their family. But that was not the way that some people functioned back in 1955 and 6 and 7 and 1960 and 61. I won't go into that, but I'll just say that these are very important scriptures and very important comparisons. Do we have that kind of faith? No. But even if you did, if I had the kind of faith that the next time this lady that the Smiths have brought here several times in a wheelchair came up here in the front row, I could just grab her by the hand like Peter did and say, rise and walk. But if I'm the kind of person I'm talking about today with a root of bitterness, who is bitter, who is acrimonious, who is accusative, who does not have love, what am I? Zero. Nothing. Goose egg. Zilch. Nada in God's sight. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter all these other things that you might have. So what is the most important thing you can have as a Christian? First of all, repent, Acts 2.38, and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? It's characterized as love. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. The Holy Spirit is the love of God, but it's the divine nature of God. As I've said time and again, there's nothing about God, God the Father, that is not holy. Now it says in the second chapter of the book of Acts, if you've read it very, very carefully, 
that the Father had poured out of his Spirit, promised of the Father, who hath, quote, shed forth this. Think about this if you are remotely inclined to believe in a Trinitarian concept or a theory. It says very clearly that the Father had made the promise, and that he, the Father, hath now shed forth this that was flickering crowns of flame and the gift of speaking in about 19 different dialects without even knowing they were doing it. They were discernible, they were understandable tongues and dialects, and also the phenomenon of the whole room where they were sitting being filled with the sound of a 747 taking off, a roaring, mighty wind. Those were great, visible and audible manifestations of what? God's Spirit, God the Father. God the Father as differentiated from, distinct from, Christ the Son. Or, if people think that there is an, a third member, the Holy Spirit. So God projects his mind, his energy, his creativity, his knowledge, his ability, his power, his force, his energy, via his Holy Spirit. God is a spirit, said Jesus, and he is able to project his power by his, God the Father's, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Father must draw, said Jesus Christ, none can come to the Son except, listen, the Spirit of the Father draw him. Does the Father have a Holy Spirit? If he has a spirit, is it holy? Well, of course. So God the Father is composed of spirit. He is able to project his power and his mind by his spirit. And it is God the Father's Holy Spirit. Now, puzzle. If the Holy Spirit is a person, does the Spirit have a spirit? Huh? Does that make sense? Does the Holy Spirit have a Holy Spirit? Huh? Does that make sense? Think about it. I mean, there are lots of exegetical and, and technical and easily discernible biblical answers to the absolute nonsense of a third century dreamer who came up with a Greek term, hypostasis, which is now being adopted by the so-called parent church that resembles, I've said, no parent of mine. But it is absolutely ludicrous when you look at it according to the Word of God. And I can't help but mail that for what it is and label it for what it is. The Holy Spirit, then, is God's very nature. And what is His nature? His nature is love. It is forgiveness. It is kindness. It is goodness. It is long-suffering. It is mercy. Let's put it this way. God's law is just like the riverbed of the Mississippi River. And the river that is flowing through that riverbed is a river. Jesus talked about rivers of living waters, and that is the good deeds and the works that flow from God's Holy Spirit. And the channel down which the Holy Spirit flows is that of God's law. Love expressed toward God is expressed how? According to the first four of the Ten Commandments. Love expressed toward neighbor is expressed how? According to the last six of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments is like the river channel, and the Holy Spirit is like the river of flowing, living, tinkling, bright, sky-blue waters that flow along the channel of God's law in love, in forgiveness, and kindness, and in mercy toward other people. So he says, if we had all of that ability to be a healer or whatever, remove mountains and have not 
agape, or love, charitable love. I am nothing, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. What if you sold your house, sold your car, and walked around like a ragamuffin, an absolute poverty-stricken old kind of a hermit, and had not a dime in your jeans, and gave every bit of it to the poor? Didn't know where your next meal was coming from. Which pretty impressive, wouldn't it? But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Though I give my body to be burned, can't imagine how someone would want to commit self-immolation of some sort and have not charity. Outgoing, agape love, it profits me nothing. Charity, now here's where we put our name in here. I, Garner Ted, suffer long. Well, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. And that is shame on my, you know, cantankerous old 65-year-old hide when I don't because I'm supposed to all the time, and is kind. Your name, my name, envies not. Not envious of somebody else's money, home, car, suits, dresses, clothing, way of life, gifts, abilities, talent, whatever. Certainly husband or wife, because it condemns that in God's word. I, you, envy not. Your name vaunts not itself, is not all, as I've said in the Texas slang, swolled up, all puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, is propitious. I found that that is something that some people never seem to learn. There are people in our society that put down, quote, culture, end quote, because they think it belongs to conservative Republicans. They think the only people who wear suits and ties are conservative Republicans. They're people who put down culture, meaning any kind of music other than the kind they like, which is heavy metal, rock and roll, whatever it might be, country western, and anything else like Beethoven, Bach, or Brahms is absolutely nonsensical. You wouldn't ever want to listen to it. And they're missing so much out of life because they don't seem to understand what is propitious. Is a funeral service the time to crack jokes. No. Anyone in this audience thinks that? Of course, you, you, obviously not, right? If you thought that President Clinton was going to be here today, how would you have gotten ready for services? If you thought he was going to visit your home this afternoon at 5 o'clock, how would you have gotten ready yesterday? Not, not that maybe some people don't have that much of an opinion. Maybe you would have worn a, an old skivvy shirt with holes in it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I better say uh, the governor of Texas or whatever you would prefer that I say. Or, or the, uh, the, the Queen of England. Maybe that's better. Huh? Everybody respects her. The Queen of England. Let's say that. So I'm out of trouble there. Propitious. That which fits the occasion. That which is suitable to what is going on. Because God says, honor to whom honor and custom to whom custom. Okay, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, or her own, her own thing, is not easily provoked. You know, people that are said to be so thin-skinned that you've got to really tread lightly, you've got to treat them with the proverbial kid gloves because they got a flashpoint about like that of uh, dust or, or, or something in the air, thinketh no evil. There are a lot of people that, aha. Uh -huh. Suspicions confirmed. You know, for years there may still be, I don't know, I haven't seen a comic strip in years, but there used to be in a comic strip, suspicions confirmed, and it would show a little scenario of some kind going on. And there are papers that cater to people like that. And these people come, they must have an IQ of three. They say, I want to know. And they publish things that these people are supposed to want to know. 
and uh, suspicions confirmed. You know, they believe all that stuff. Ninety-nine percent of it is completely lies, just made up, but they believe it. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. Now, the kind of person I talked about a little earlier does rejoice in iniquity. They are like a private detective who discovered exactly what was going on. They're like a cop that discovered who it was that was the perpetrator and is about to make the arrest. Aha! I found somebody doing something perfectly terrible here, and I'm happy as a result. No. Usually, the person in whom is the Spirit of God is hurt when they discover iniquity. Oh, no. That's terrible. Oh, the pain that poor person must be in. Oh, the, 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 what are the, all the inputs that are causing this person to be involved in all of this nonsense that is going on? It's hurting him, hurting her, hurting himself, whatever. The attitude of Jesus Christ would be completely different than we tend to think. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things, meaning all the best things, not believing lies. Hopes all things, endures all things. It never fails. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Is that ever so? Whether there be languages, they shall cease, because God is going to do away with all the world's languages, and there will be a new language in God's kingdom. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. I won't read all the rest of that, but he says at the end of it, these abide, verse 13, faith, hope, charity. And that's the order in which the so-called general books James wrote about faith, First and Second Peter is about hope, and John, First, Second, and Third John is about charity or the agape love. These three, but the greatest of these, the greatest of them, is charity, charity, charitable love. All right, I want to go to Jeremiah 10 and verse 24, right quickly. Refresh our minds on this scripture that has not been uh, repeated in recent years, as far as I remember. Jeremiah the 10th chapter, and verse 24. He prays, O Eternal, correct me, but with judgment, that is, with fairness, equity, discretion, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they've eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him and made his habitation desolate. Here was a great prophet of God who prayed for God in his mercy, in judgment, in fairness, to correct him. He wanted correction. David prayed for correction. Look at Psalm 51. This is the beautiful repentant psalm of David after the incident with Bathsheba. It's one that my uncle uh, made into a very beautiful song. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. That is a beautiful statement in God's sight. Do you know why David was a man after God's own heart? Because he was a repenter. Because David repented when he was shown that he was wrong. He did not accuse the person who told him he was wrong. He repented. He said, do you suppose I was wrong? And he admitted that he was wrong. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin 
just like a vivid technicolor movie right there in front of his eyes, is ever before me. Now, someone who is looking only at his own shortcomings, his own failings, his own faults and sins, is not someone who is standing around accusing someone else, is he? His whole mind is instead on his own problems. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when you speak, and be clear when you judge. In verse 7 he says, Purge me with hyssop. That was a kind of a, a, a brush-like substance that was used as a cleansing agent. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, because he had been in a wrong spirit. He had been in a covetous and a lustful spirit. He had been in a vindictive, murderous spirit, actually conspired in his own mind to send a man to his certain death so he could grab his wife. He had been in a bitter, acrimonious spirit. He had drifted away from God. And now he comes back to God and says, Cleanse me from inside and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That would be the last thing that he would want. Because should that ever happen, there is nothing, as God's word says, but a certain fearful looking for, a fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. There is no more repentance for sin. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Are you happy? Are you happy today? Were you happy this morning? Have you had a happy week? Will you be happy this evening? Are you joyous? Do God's people understand what it means to be saved? Do we understand what it means to be free of sin? Do we understand what it means to have a clean conscience? Do we understand what it means to be joyous before God's throne? To be so thankful we can hardly contain it and we can hardly express how much we want to thank him for what he has done for us. I see people sometimes who think they are Christians, who get embroiled in the most vicious catfights, and where there is no remote hint of conversion or repentance or salvation or the mercy and the long-suffering and the goodness of God, but is instead is all the rancor and the anger of some politician or some military man or whatever who had never heard the gospel. And it is, it's amazing to me that people can posture. I had to break into one meeting I remember not long ago, and I was saying, you know, we're talking about all these things, but here are flesh and blood human beings, beloved brothers that we love, and we ought to be talking from that standpoint, not from all the parameters of all the difficulties and so on. Thank God that in one very uh, nice situation that I was involved in not too long ago, there was a great and a happy, a salubrious outcome. And I'm just so happy and so grateful for that. And it was because of that desire to win beloved brothers, to understand, to forgive, to be patient, not to necessarily haul out all the big guns and just blow them out of the water, but to understand, to take those two lines and just bend one of them over and go along together and find a mutual solution to the problem. It is so nice when the problem is solved in a happy way.
Then, if that should happen, he says, will I teach transgressors that way? In other words, then when I'm no more impeded by all the infighting and the cat fights and the problems and the self-justification, then I can get on with the work. Then I can be productive. Then I can teach sinners thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And that's exactly the way it is in God's work. That's the way it is in Christ's ministry. If we as a church, if we as a ministry are spending all of our time picking splinters out of our own toes, if we're spending all of our time investigating our own cuts and bruises, if we're spending all of our time trying to put healing salve on our own wounds that are self-inflicted, we're not going to be the kind of people reaching out to the world, reaching out to other confused, befuddled, and bewildered people who are looking for a place to go. We're not going to present to them a warm, united, wonderful, loving, welcoming front together. Instead, they're going to come in, take a look, and recoil and go somewhere else. I've talked about it for the better part of a decade and a half. I've talked about the well-intentioned dragons, and so has Mr. Dart. We try to bring them in from television, and we try to bring them in from the booklets and the tapes and the magazines, and we try to bring them in with personal appearance campaigns, and someone will run up to them and give them all this nonsense, some self-appointed would-be evangelist, male or female, and turn them right back out the same door they came in. And it's happened in dozens of cases. I think people ought to take a good long look, maybe go down to an old antique store someplace and find themselves a millstone. Try to pick it up. See how heavy it is. Get real acquainted with a millstone. Your Savior talked about that millstone, and he talked about where it belongs, around whose neck. If people deter, hinder, turn away, thwart, frustrate, confuse, turn off, cause to become bitter, a little one who is seeking only the same joy of salvation, uh, a comfortable, wonderful, joyous uh, church home, if you will, but a place to go, a place to belong, a place to find worship and safety and brotherly love. Let's turn to, to Hebrews 12, Hebrews the 12th chapter, again, one with which most of us are quite familiar. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, following right on with the 11th chapter, which is a list of the great martyrs of God. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and oh, that is so true, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, the future, the joy of that reunion in heaven, the joy of walking up onto that sea of glass and seeing his Father once again, looking past this, saying, even this shall pass, even this chapter shall be closed, even this event will finally be concluded. I will get through this somehow with the help of God the Father who for the joy that was set before him endured the stauros, the stake, the tree, as it should read, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I put it this way at the Feast of Tabernacles about five years ago up in Wagoner. I said, we ought to imagine that we're there at Golgotha. The black clouds have rolled in, the thunder is rolling, and bolts of lightning are coming down. It got very black and very dark that day. 
And at the instant that Jesus died, as you know, a great, uh, know, a great earthquake shook that whole area and knocked the lids off many sarcophagi, and people were actually resurrected, and the veil into the Holy of Holies was just split right in two because it was very tightly tied on each side of that door at the instant that Christ died. But as he was up there on that stake moaning, you have to imagine yourself with this big yellow pad and this pencil of the list of all the things that the one that you hate, the one of which or toward which you're angry, one or ones, people, things, organization, him, her, they, whatever, and you have your list there of all that they've done, and you're right underneath the stake, the cross of Jesus Christ, and you're saying, but Lord, he, he said, and about that time, splat. Right on your words is a drop of blood. And then she did this. She said this about me. Splat. Another drop of blood. And every time you come up with some argument, some finger pointing somewhere else, yes, but you wouldn't listen to me. Yes, but you didn't read what I wrote. Yes, but you're not kind. Yes, but you're not fair. Splat. And I got the point across that day. People understood what I was talking about. Because when it comes time to be bitter and point a finger, people have forgotten a suffering Savior on the stake. He isn't in their mind. They have completely forgotten him. Notice, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, and he, unlike any one of us, was perfect. Every one of us are flawed. Every one of us, including your speaker today, are seriously flawed. We're not perfect, and we're not righteous, and we're not holy, except in part with whatever degree of God's Holy Spirit is in connection with our human spirit to make us new creatures in Christ, there can be a holy thing that is begun inside of us. I was just commenting to my wife here back here today, or Alicia and, and Deanna, and only a few weeks ago there were two young wives here who were obviously in the advanced stages of pregnancy, but today both of them are carrying little bassinets and are two little, little boys there, two brand new little creatures. And I've talked so often about the new creature in Christ. It is literal. It is true. And what do you suppose, what kind of a child, if you want to characterize it as a little boy or a little girl, do you think God wants to see born into his family? Now, who and what is God? What is he like? Is he kind? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he holy? Is he decent? Is he patient? Is he long-suffering? Is he merciful? Does he forgive? and so on. Does he want, then, a bitter, angry, easily provoked, self-righteous, accusative, acrimonious little thing to be born into his family where you've got to put the bric-a-brac out of reach and you've got to hide everything that's important in your house if you get a house guest because they're called rugrats. They run around and destroy things. Is that what God is expecting? What do you expect in your family if you have a child or a grandchild? Why, you, you want as close to perfection as it's humanly possible to get, don't you? Sure you do. Sweet, loving, and wonderful. That's what God wants. God wants children. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. 
My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So the key to avoid any kind of a root of bitterness is, first of all, prayer, intensive prayer, constant prayer, prayer every day, prayer many hours a week, more and more of God's Holy Spirit, which is the fertile soil, well-nourished, completely devoid of any of the wild seeds that are going to take root, which is inhospitable soil to a bitter root. It can't grow there. It can't take root there because you cannot get on your knees and start your prayer for your enemy, which Christ commands you to do. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. You cannot do that and get up from prayer and write a bitter letter, make a bitter telephone call, send a bitter fax, or put a bitter look on your face. You can't do it. So remember again, there's a three-part success story for how not to let a root of bitterness get into your mind. And the first part of it is admit you were wrong. And the second part of it is admit you were wrong. And the third part of it is, admit you were wrong.